We like to remember positive history, and we like to forget negative or shameful history. Um, Over the past several years, statues have been removed from various places across the United States. In our own local area, high school names with negative connotations have been changed or are being changed. And I think that reasonable people can discuss the wisdom of some or maybe even all of those actions. But set aside those discussions for just a moment and consider more personally, in your own life, what do you prefer to remember? What do you prefer to remember? The the happy days or the hard days? The days where you were at your best or the days where you were at your worst? We like to remember positive history, don't we? And we like to forget negative or shameful history. And one of the things that I find constantly fascinating about the Bible is this. Negative and shameful history is not only recorded, but remembered. It is remembered not just once, but over and over and over again. And this morning, as we look at Deuteronomy 32, we're going to be reminded yet again of Moses' own shameful, sinful, negative history. And we're going to learn about a song that previews and predicts the shame and sin of the people of Israel. We're we're even going to learn uh, that children, well, we learned last week that children were made to sing this song. So that Israel's sinfulness does not actually fall out of the living memory of the nation. Now think about that. The the negative and shameful history of Israel is intentionally kept in the living memory of the nation. God constantly keeps the sin of the Israelites before their eyes. So that when he comes to save his people from their sins, they might sing for joy at his goodness and grace. Keeping the negative and shameful history before the nation is a powerful pedagogical practice. Rejoicing in God's salvation is not the only reason to keep the negative and shameful history within the living memory of his people. There's another reason, and it's this. God keeps the negative and shameful history within our living memory so that we flee the sins that plagued our predecessors. Keeping God's judgments against sin within our sights helps us to treasure his mercy, to sing for joy at his goodness and mercy. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from Deuteronomy 32. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32, and you can find the passage on page 173 of the Bibles provided. Last week, as we studied Deuteronomy 31... And that chapter that set up this song, this song of Moses that we find here in Deuteronomy 32, we learned that God instructed Moses to write this song. What is more, we learned that the reason for this song and the role of the song in the life of the people of Israel uh, was intentional. The reason for this song was to announce Israel's coming apostasy. And its role was to accuse the nation of abandoning Yahweh, of God, their covenant Lord. This morning, we turn to study this song, Moses' petition that follows the song, and Moses' preparation for death. We're going to study our passage today in three sections under three headings. But here's, here's what you need to know about those three points. We're going to start toward the end of chapter 32, and then we'll circle back to the beginning in the song of Moses, where we'll spend most of our time. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline for the rest of the sermon, these three points. A solemn charge, or you could call it a solemn plea. A solemn end is the second point. And the third point is a surprising song. So let's begin with our first point, a solemn plea or solemn charge. And here we're looking at Moses' charge just after the song. You'll notice that poetic form set in our English translations. So this content comes right after that song. So please follow along as I read, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 44. Deuteronomy 32, verse 44 to 47. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. 
And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Together, Moses and Joshua taught the people of Israel the song of chapter 32, the, the song that was to bear witness against Israel. This is important for, the, for passing the mantle of leadership over to Joshua. But in verse 45, Moses steps forward and personally delivers a solemn plea. Moses desperately wants the people of Israel to take to heart the words of the law. Don't pass over those words in verse 46 too quickly. The truth is, is that if Israel does not take these words deep into their hearts, the words won't come out of their mouths or lives. If this warning does not ring true for them down in their bones, then they will live carelessly. This is something that we need to grasp about warnings in the Bible. God's people welcome them, and we walk by them. The warnings of Scripture are like guardrails on the side of a narrow mountain pass. You don't hug the guardrail close to the cliff. No, you hug the safety of that middle yellow line. God's word, we see in verse 47, is no empty word for his people. These are no idle threats. These are sincere and serious warnings meant to protect and prosper God's people. God's warning even, even serve a practical purpose in, in the economy of the Mosaic Covenant. In the era where God's people lived under the law of Moses, heeding, keeping, living, and doing the law was directly tied to Israel's safety, prosperity, and length of life in the land. As long as Israel remained faithful to the covenant with Yahweh, then they would enjoy the blessing of living in his land. And this arrangement was very much like the arrangement God made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. As long as they kept God's commands, Adam and Eve, then they too would remain in the blessing of the Garden. But as soon as they rebelled, they would be thrust out of the land and face the threat of death. The same is true for Israel and the Garden land of Canaan. Well, we've heard Moses issue a solemn plea. In verses 48 to 52, we see that Moses will meet a solemn end. And this is our second point, a solemn end. Please follow along as I read, beginning there in verse 48. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel for you shall see the land before you but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Well, in these words, we're given a preview of Moses' death. Moses' death has long been predicted in the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible. Much of what we find in these verses is also found in Numbers chapter 27. But what makes these words particularly solemn and sharp in this context is that Moses is nearer to the end of his days than he was in Numbers 27. Moses is running out of time. These verses, are, they're, they're rather straightforward. And in them, we are painfully reminded that Moses will not go into the promised land. He will die outside of the promised land because of his own personal rebellion. His own negative and shameful history recorded back in Numbers chapter 20. In that passage, we learn that the Lord commanded Moses to bring water from a rock and so satisfy the thirst of the people of Israel in the desert. Moses did not speak to the rock in faith. Instead, he struck the rock in unbelief. Listen to Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. 
Sadly, the reason Moses did not enter the promised land was the same reason that the older generation of Israel did not enter the promised land. Unbelief. Let's remember who is writing this book, this book of Deuteronomy. It's Moses. And so here is Moses laying bare for his readers, for us, his own unbelief and its consequences. He records for us the Lord's audible and verbal reaction to his unbelief and sin. He recorded it for us in Numbers 20, in Numbers 27, and here in Deuteronomy 32. But he has recorded it elsewhere for us in the Pentateuch too. Why would Moses do this? Because Moses wanted the people of Israel to believe. He wrote numbers as if to say, we should have believed God in the wilderness. He wrote Deuteronomy as if to say, look, when you get into the promised land, you need to believe him there. You you need to believe him there or else you will face the same consequences for your unbelief that I am now facing. I will not make it in. You will. But if you do not believe God, if you do not uphold him as holy, if you do not keep his law, you will be thrown out. Don't let my solemn end be your solemn end. I only get one last momentary look at the land. But you, you have an opportunity for a long life in the land. Trust and obey. It's striking that Moses ends his life pleading with those he loves to obey. Rather than pleading with God to remove the sentence. We should all be sobered by the thought that none of us here are promised tomorrow. Let's look to Moses and spend our days, however many more, the Lord is pleased to give us pleading with those we love to trust and obey the Lord. And note too that Moses' past sins and disobedience do not prohibit him or limit him from speaking God's word to others. Maybe you, Christian, maybe you are ashamed of your past sin. We must certainly confess our sin, repent, and call upon Christ for forgiveness. And having done so, Christian, don't let your past sins hold you back from proclaiming Christ. God uses sinners to speak for him. Humanly speaking, sinners is all he's got. That We're it. Moses was a sinner. So am I. And if you don't know already, so are you. We can and all should speak of Christ and speak for Christ. Because we're not speaking about ourselves. We're speaking about the Lord Jesus. Now, we've jumped to the end of chapter 32. But now... Well, we're going to jump to the beginning. Uh, we, we've jumped to the end, and we've looked at Moses' solemn plea and his solemn end, but the truth is that this is the whole context in which this song of Moses comes. Um, we've already heard Moses' plea and end throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and even in chapter 31. If you, if you scan your eyes across chapter 31, you'll see Moses' plea in verse 13 and his end in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 31. But now we want to take a look at this song. So, As we turn back to really the beginning of chapter 32, our third point, this is what we're going to look at, the Song of Moses, which the third point that I'm entitling is a surprising song. Let's keep Moses' own life and context in mind. Follow along as I read just the first few verses. I want to begin reading in verse 30 of chapter 31, and I want to read through chapter 32, verse 4. That's just the the last verse of chapter 31, the first four verses of chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. In these verses, Moses calls for heaven and earth to give ear and hear. And with this, we are at once reminded that we are reading poetry. And we must read this as it was meant to be read. Uh, A dramatic tapestry of fantastic imagery intended to convey truth. And it was truth that was meant to be felt, received, and believed. 
Not only should we take care to read this poetry as poetry, but we're also reminded that the created order has been called to witness, to witness God's covenant with Israel. As we learned last week in Deuteronomy chapter 31, the heavens and the earth, the law, and uh, the, uh, the song of Moses itself, all three of these will function as witnesses against Israel concerning her unfaithfulness to God. Now there is, is solemnity to this song. We're going to see that. But verse 2, I believe, contains an element of surprise. Moses' teaching, this song, is to drop as the rain. Moses' teaching of the law and this very song ought to be renewing and refreshing for the people of God. That's what rain does. It makes, it makes the flowers grow. When received like rain, this song would grow life in God's people. What else grows the faith of the people of God but the great and unchanging character of God? In verses 3 and 4, we're introduced to an image that's going to be strung straight through this song. Our God is an unmovable, unchanging rock. His fixed and firm character is about to be set in sharp contrast to Israel's fickle faithlessness. In other words, in this song, the changing people are contrasted against the unchanging God. Consider Moses' praise of God's character in verses 3 and 4. Perfect, faithful, pure, just, and upright. Behold your God, Moses says to Israel. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is why you can trust him. Because he's unmoving. This is why you should trust him. Because he's unchanging. In many ways, the the attributes appropriately ascribed to our God in verses 3 and 4 also outlined the remaining trajectory of this song. Now, now note here at the, the top of the song, the call for the heavens to give ear there in verse 1. Now, now let your eyes run down to the tail of the song, the very end of the song, the last verse there in verse 43. And what do you see? Do you see how the heavens are called to rejoice? The joy of the end mirrors the joy of the beginning. This is part of the surprise of this song. It's meant to encourage the joy of God's people. But, but as you turn back and look there at verses 5 and 6, you, you may wonder, how can these words encourage joy? I mean, seriously, read verses 5 and 6 with me. They have dealt corruptly with him. Speaking of Israel, they have dealt corruptly with him. They're no longer his children because they're blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? See, these verses are a charge against Israel. They are a a brief preview of Israel's future rebellion. And in these verses, Israel is identified as, as corrupt and crooked. They are children who have been cast off, for they are blemished and brutish. They're they're senseless. Here, no charge is leveled against Yahweh, no charge is leveled against God. This is all Israel's doing. And the questions of verse 6 have a kind of incredulous tone to them, don't they? They cry, how could you, Israel? And the feeling of incredulity is only deepened by the next stanza of the song, where Israel's history is reviewed and previewed. In other words, Israel is reminded of what God has done previous to entering the promised land, and he tells them what he will yet do to bless them in the promised land. This is what we see in verses 7 to 14. You can see that verse 7 begins with that word remember. Here we're invited to go back and consider God's great faithfulness, his compassion, his abundant mercy toward his people in the past. You see verse 9, God tells us that God treasures his people. And verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 tell us that God will tenderly nurture. He will watch over, provide, and guide Israel in the promised land. So certain is this future that's ahead of them that it's spoken of as a thing in the past. It's a fait accompli, a thing that's already been accomplished. If Israel would look back on their history, they would know that God would keep his promises concerning their future. Christian, I wonder, if you looked back on your history, could you see God's hand in it? Can can you see how God has tenderly nurtured watched over, provided, and guided you? Can you see that? If he has been so faithful to you in the past, especially at the cross, 
if he has been so faithful to you in the past, what do you think the future holds? It holds for you the new heavens and the new earth. If you have such a glorious past of being reconciled to Jesus Christ and such a glorious future with Jesus, will you be faithful to him in the present? Will you be faithful to Jesus tomorrow? And friend, if you're here today and and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something I think you need to know. God has also tenderly nurtured, watched over, provided, and guided you. He, He has brought you to this day and this place where you can hear about his sovereign, holy, and loving character. He has brought you to this day and this place where you can hear about the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation offered in him, which maybe you've never truly heard before, or maybe you've never truly heard with ears of faith and a heart ready to receive and believe Jesus. So as you continue to listen to God's word, read and expounded, consider the fact that God is speaking to you and calling you to place your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. At verse 15, take a look at verse 15. We turn from God's tender care to Israel's treason in the future. These verses sadly look forward to Israel turning away from God and his covenant. Jeshurun, you see there in verse 15, is a, is a pet name for Israel. It's something like when a husband calls his wife honey or, or sweetie bumpkins. Uh, I thought maybe we'd do an exercise of asking husbands to tell us what names they, they call their wives, but that might be a little embarrassing for some, so we won't go there. Um, but this is a, it's a term of endearment here, Jeshurun. Um, the name Jeshurun, it means upright one. But as we see here, it's actually used ironically. It's actually a dig at Israel. Israel will be anything but upright. In the future, Israel will be downright rebellious. Just read verses 15 to 18. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. See, this has been actually the constant prediction in the book of Deuteronomy. There was coming a day when Israel would enter, conquer, and settle in the promised land of Canaan. They would delight in God's good gift of the land, but sadly, they would come to love the gift instead of the giver of the gift. They would, as we see here, get full and fat and eventually forget and forsake their rock. We see here that they would abandon the one true God to worship false gods and idols of the surrounding nations. And this stirs God to jealousy. He does not want Israel to share their love with others. That belittles and dishonors God. It brings God down and categorizes him as common instead of upholding him as holy and high above all other gods. God is jealous. He is like an enraged husband who comes home to find his wife in bed with another lover. Love is not love unless it's jealous. Brothers and sisters, God is no less jealous for the love of his people today. James chapter 4 verse 5 tells us he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And the idea there in the book of James is simply this. God has made us to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. He has given us a spirit for that. And we are to give our our whole hearts to him. God loves us with a jealous love. Now, Christian, take some time and think about what that says about God's love for you. That he loves you. That he is jealous for your love. It's precisely Israel's waywardness and idolatry that provokes God to jealousy. The challenge is is that we saw in verse 4, God is just, and so he must punish sin. 
And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God has promised that he would meet disobedience with destruction. He would meet covenant breaking with covenant curses. We saw that especially in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. And we see this, these curses brought about again in summary form in verses 19 to 26. Just quickly glance at verses 19 to 26 and you'll see that. In these verses, we're still looking forward to the future days, not only of Israel's rebellion, but also ahead to God's punishment of that rebellion. One thing we cannot fail to notice is this, is it's all Israel's fault. Verse 20, 21, you see there, make plain that they were perverse and a faithless generation. They made God jealous. They provoked God with their idolatry. This was a voluntary rejection of God by Israel. They made God jealous, and he purposed to make them jealous. Now note that idea in verse 21, because I think there's a surprise in that. God purposed to make them jealous, even in the midst of their punishment. This is surprising. You see, part of the design, part of the design of God's disciplinary punishment upon Israel was to draw them back to himself. How merciful of God. God really does discipline those he loves, and he really does chastise his people for their good and encouragement to return to the Lord Jesus in faith. God's chastisement and correction is really the dominating theme in this section. In the book of Deuteronomy, as I said, particularly in chapter 28, God has promised that should Israel rebel, should they reject God, he would remove them from the promised land of Canaan by the hand of foreign invaders of Gentile nations, of senseless people. Verse 21 makes plain that God will raise up a a foolish nation to bring disaster upon Israel. And this is precisely what took place through Assyria in 722 B.C. and Babylon in 587 B.C. when God removed Israel from their land and devastated their population. All of this, though, would not lead to Israel being completely wiped out. God would restrain those foreign nations that he raised up for the chastisement of his people, for the discipline of his people. Take a look at verses 26 and 27. I would have said, cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. See, these are, these are surprising verses. For in them, God is making clear that he will not let Israel's enemies, he will not let Israel's enemies, he will not let those whom he is wielding as an instrument of his discipline and chastisement upon his people. He will not let the the foreign and the conquering nations, he will not let them become so proud as to say, we've defeated Israel all by ourselves. They are not that great and mighty. God is. God has merely allowed Israel to be defeated by these nations. He has ordained and ordered it. That's what these nations don't understand, according to verses 28 to 30. Read them with me. For they are a nation. That's a reference to the Gentile nations that God would use to punish Israel. For they are a nation void of counsel. Well, of course they're void of counsel. They they don't have God's word. And there is no understanding in them. Of course there isn't. They don't have God's spirit. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. They would discern that they're going to be judged, which we're going to see later on in this song. How could 1,000 have chased 1,000 and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock, that's God, had sold them and the Lord had given them up? See, the arrogant nations were not going to be permitted to do whatever they wanted. No, they would be used by God to chastise his people to the limit and extent necessary for Israel's repentance. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is how sovereign God is. He rules over evil and overrules evil to his redemptive purposes. As one of my seminary professors said, he rules over evil and he overrules evil all without himself being guilty of evil. This is how holy he is. And this is the surprising song that God, he is putting it, remember this, he is putting this song in the mouths of his people. God puts it in the mouths of his people. So what he's doing here is he's putting Israel's own judgment 
in their own mouths. He's making them sing of their own coming judgment. Who wouldn't be surprised to sing about their own coming judgment? But not only does Israel, not only does this song include Israel's punishment, it also includes the punishment of their enemies. Israel was to sing this with confident joy. Look at what they will sing about their enemies there in verses 31 to 35. They will sing about the certainty of God's judgment on their enemies. Verse 31, for their rock, that's their enemy's rock, their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes as the vine of Sodom from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time will come when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. See, here Israel sings of the coming judgment upon their enemies. And look at how certain their judgment is. Their foot shall slide in due time. That was Jonathan Edwards' text in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which I would commend to your listening. Go find it on YouTube, and if you think it takes too long, listen to it at double speed. It's a wonderful meditation pushing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Otherwise, our feet are slipping. And we are falling. Their foot shall slide in due time. And here's the point that we need to see from these verses in Deuteronomy 32. Everything and everyone that wicked men are trusting in, including themselves, will fail. In the words of verse 31, their rock is not as our rock. There is only one solid rock. Think of how much this would have encouraged the people of God who are languishing in exile, having been ripped out of their homes and under heavy oppression by foreign regimes. Think of how much this song would have encouraged them as they were languishing in exile. This song would keep the people of God from becoming overwhelmed by the weight of the oppression that they were enduring. This song really would have been refreshing, refreshing and renewing and reinvigorating for the ancient people of God. And think of how much this song should be an encouragement to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you not understand that the world thinks it has the upper hand on the people of God? The spirit of this age, the people of this world who oppress God's people, think that they are victorious. But their rock is not as our rock. Their rock, they will slip upon it. The, the rock on they stand, well, they're their foot shall slide in due time. Our hope is not in earthly power. It is not in markets or courts or congresses or presidents. Our rock is not in individuals or institutions that inhabit the earth. Our rock is the God who made heaven and earth and rules over them all. Who turns the hearts of kings as if their wills were but streams of water in his hands. Proverbs 21, 1. The destruction of the enemies of God's people portrayed here in Deuteronomy 32 is but a type and shadow of the full and final judgment of God to come upon the earth. That's what we learn from the book of Revelation. And why God's people in Revelation 15 joyfully and triumphantly actually sing the song of Moses, as we read earlier in the service. Well, moving our minds back to Deuteronomy 32. What the, what the next part of this song teaches us is that God's judgment upon Israel, Israel's enemies, simultaneously secures the vindication of his people. See, judgment and mercy go hand in hand in the Bible. That's what the cross teaches us, isn't it? Our sins are punished, they are judged, and because of it we receive mercy. Let's read of God's judgment upon his enemies and mercy upon his people, Israel. In verses 36 to 43 now. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. For if I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, 
If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. These verses, they are harrowing and horrifying for the enemies of God. They are promised nothing but complete, total, and utter destruction. I mean, the images of arrows being drunk with blood, they fearfully and forcefully communicate the power of God's judgment. So does the image of God sharpening his flashing sword and taking hold of it in judgment. The rocks in which God's enemies took refuge were no refuge at all. The same is true of Israel when they turned to foreign gods. Those gods were no refuge for them at all either. See, when God is determined to decimate his enemies, no one can deliver them. These verses are harrowing and horrifying for the enemies of God, for those who have rebelled against God and rejected God. For there is no escape and there is no mercy. But these verses are surprisingly full of hope for the sinful people of God. We're told in verse 36 that the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Well, when will he do this? When they're able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Will God help them when they can help themselves? No. Will God help us when we've cleaned up our lives and gotten rid of all of our sin? Do you think that's what God is expecting of you? It's not. When will God help his people? Look there. God will help his people when he sees that their power is gone. Verse 36. And that they've been made so small in number that it seems that there's none left. When his people have been brought to their lowest point and they have been made to feel that they have no hope but the God of heaven and earth, then he will spring to their rescue. Then he will repay those who hate him and cleanse his people's land. Verse 43. And, and if you were to think back on the, the history of Israel, then you would see that and, and know that God did restore the fortunes of his people. He did cast them into exile through those foreign nations, and he brought them out of exile, back into the promised land. The temple was even rebuilt. Still, even, even there when the temple was rebuilt, we, we read in Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 that the, the old priests, they, they grieved for they knew that this wasn't the final temple of God. This song would have given hope to those who were in that period of restoration too. And, and as the pages of the New Testament open, while some of the physical aspects of the exile have been resolved, like God's people are in God's place, it seems as though the spiritual aspects of the exile have not been resolved. It feels as though God's people are still deserving of judgment. Jesus actually said as much. Do you remember what we read, read in verse 5? You put your eyes on there, you see that Israel is called a crooked and twisted generation. What about in verse 20, where they're called a perverse generation in whom is no faithfulness? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 17? Speaking to the people of his day, he said, O faithless and twisted generation. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus called his generation an adulterous and sinful generation. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus said, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. You see, from, from the vantage point of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, God's wrath against the sins of his people had not been exhausted in the exile. No, they are still fully deserving of facing God's curses and punishment. And that is why Jesus went to the cross. Instead of God's covenant curses coming down upon his people once more, they come down once and for all upon his one and only son on the cross. Is it any wonder that Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, said in John chapter 11 verse 50, it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. And John writes this little comment right after that. 
on Caiaphas' words. He said, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment due to all of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Deuteronomy 32 declares that judgment is due to both Jew and Gentile peoples. Don't you see the the arrows of God's judgment against sin, against the sin of the whole world were made drunk with Jesus' blood. Jesus is the true Jeshurun. He is the true upright one, the sinless one, who underwent the flood of God's covenant curses on the cross. See, there Jesus extinguished and exhausted God's wrath against the sins of his people. By the sword of God's judgment, verse 41, Jesus was cut off and exiled from the land of the living. But three days after his death, God had compassion on his son. Verse 36, God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. And so the rock or the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of our faith. If you'll permit, I want to make two points of application from this song of Moses for two groups of people. And I want to do so by reading a few passages from the New Testament. Two passages. So first, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 812. 812. This passage, it comes at the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And it's something of a solemn plea from Jesus. This is not unlike how at the end of Moses' sermons in Deuteronomy, we have a series of pleas for faith and obedience. So, so listen, please listen as I follow, or follow along as I read the closing words to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. How do we enter the kingdom of God? We enter the kingdom by hearing the words of Jesus and making them, of making him, the foundation of our lives. So friend, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to ask you, what are you building your life upon? Who or what is your rock? And is your rock like Jesus? In this sermon from Matthew's gospel that Jesus preached, Jesus has said that he is the one whom the whole law, which includes Deuteronomy, and the prophets pointed to. Jesus said that he is the Savior whom the whole Old Testament promised, the one who came to save his people from their sins. And through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has demonstrated that he, he is the righteous king who has come to save the unrighteous and to call them on to righteousness. Are you a subject of King Jesus? The consequences of not becoming a subject of this king are great. Take a look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Those who do not enter the kingdom will face the storm of God's eternal wrath. They will suffer a great fall from which there is no getting up again. Friends, just as the people of Israel were were guilty of idolatry and sin in Deuteronomy 32, so are we. We are not upright. We commit murder in our hearts. We become angry with others. We commit adultery in our hearts. We lust after those who are not our spouses. 
We are unrighteous, and God would be totally just to punish us for our sins forever in hell. He would be completely just to banish us to an eternal exile where we suffer his just wrath against our sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God has supplied salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. He has given us a rock upon whom we may build our lives. See, Jesus, he lived the righteous life of of pure piety, of pure trust and devotion to God. He never sinned. He never murdered or committed adultery, not even in his heart. He never served two masters. He was never anxious about his future. He was perfectly righteous in thought, in word, and in deed. And he was so for the whole course of his life. Jesus' life was a living of the great law that we find in Deuteronomy. And having having perfectly lived out the righteousness described in God's law, he laid his life down. Jesus died upon a cross. And when he did, he took the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. He not only laid his life down, but three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all That he is indeed the righteous one. He is indeed the true Jeshurun, the king whom we should serve. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of Jesus. You're not a subject of this king. Then I want to encourage you to hear the call of the king. The call to turn from your sins. To hear his words. To believe that he lived for you. The life that you, that you and I have not lived. To believe that he died for you the death that you deserve for the punishment of your sins and to believe that he was raised from the grave for you so that you might be received into the kingdom of heaven all because of the righteousness of Jesus our King which you receive as you place your faith in him. This is how you build your life upon God's sure rock, Jesus Christ. And Christian, I need to say a word to you too. Once the building has begun, it must continue. You have begun to build your life on Christ the rock, and you must continue to do so. Isn't that effectively Moses' plea at the end of Deuteronomy 32? Doesn't he say to the people of Israel, take these words to heart. Show that you have taken these words to heart through faith and obedience. Brothers and sisters, did you know that Paul, he he picks up these words from the song of Moses, and he encourages believers in Jesus to shine as lights in the world. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse, 15, verse 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find this on page uh, 981. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. And as we prepare to, to read this passage, I just I want you to remember a few key words from Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, we were told that Israel was no longer the children of God because they were blemished by sin. We were told that they were a crooked and twisted generation. Now let's begin reading Philippians chapter 2, beginning there in verse 14. Do all things, all things without grumbling or disputing, that... You may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here, Paul says that believers in Jesus Christ are not to be like the unfaithful Israelites described in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They must positively live out their identity as God's unblemished children, his sons and daughters. And we are only his unblemished children as we hide ourselves in his unblemished son, Jesus Christ. As believers live out their faith union with Jesus, they shine like stars in a dark world, like the light of the world did when he walked upon the earth. In this way, we serve Jesus and we serve others by revealing his character. 
practically speaking, how do we live and love like Jesus? Well, Paul tells us there in verse 16, doesn't he? He says, holding fast to the word of life. Does that sound familiar? It should. It should actually sound like Moses' solemn plea when he said, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, for it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land. See, God has always called his people on to holiness and happiness through himself and his word. There is no holiness or happiness apart from Jesus and the word that reveals Jesus. And as we conclude, brothers and sisters, I want to plead with you to hold fast to the word of life. Hold on to the good news that Jesus has borne the punishment that your sins deserve, the covenant curses that you deserve. That is certainly negative and shameful history, is it not? That the sinless son had to die for sinful ones like you and me. It is negative and shameful history. And yet, in the cross, God's judgment and mercy were made known. And this is why we remember our history and hold on to the one who is the word. This is why we hold on to the one who is in whom is found eternal life. See, as Paul looked forward to the day of Christ, we see here, the day of Jesus' return, so do we. The people who first sang the song of Moses looked forward to the day of their vindication, and so do we. Our day is the day of Jesus Christ. Today, believers in Jesus Christ look forward to his day, the day when God's enemies will be fully and finally judged, and God's people fully and finally vindicated and glorified. We hold on to our history because in it we remember our sins were judged in Christ and there too we find the mercy of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that the final word on our history is not sinner judged and condemned but it is son, daughter, loved and treasured because of the work of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we pray and ask that you would cause us to ever rest on our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in his solid name. Amen.